So, uh, hello, uh, podcast fans and observation medicine listeners. Dr. Wheatley and myself are broadcasting from lovely Seattle, Washington, for uh, our most recent podcast, which will be about observation medicine in the future. Some we'll talk some about the two midnight rule, and uh, we've been fortunate enough to have. Uh, some high-ranking members of the American College of Emergency Physicians join us to share some of their thoughts on uh, observation, the two midnight rule in the future. So I am joined today by Dr. Rebecca Parker uh, and uh, David McKenzie, both members of uh, uh, the American College, and allow them to introduce themselves. All right, well, thanks for this uh, chance to talk. Uh, I'm Becky Parker. I'm an emergency physician practicing in Chicago, Illinois. I'm a member of the Board of Directors, and this is my fourth year on the board. I've been involved in ASEP for 16 years, and for the last 11 years, been working with the Coding and Nomenclature Advisory Committee as a member, then the chair, and now as board liaison. Uh, so I'm excited to be here today. And David McKenzie is our reimbursement uh, director for ASEP. I'll let him uh, give a little background. I am the uh, director of reimbursement department for ASEP. I have the uh, task of staffing the reimbursement committee and the coding and nomenclature advisory committee, as well as the, uh, the staff liaison to the CPT editorial panel process and the AMA relative value update committee, which a few years ago reviewed the observation codes and uh, looked to uh, revalue them, uh, getting some fairly significant increases in the uh, 2012 five-year review fee schedule. Also known as the RUC. Uh, Dr. Parker, recently you gave a presentation that was to the the entire ASAP board, was it, about yes. uh, uh, observation. So maybe you can share some of uh, your thoughts and, and uh, uh, what the board thought about how observation is going to fit into the college's plans for the future. Sure. Uh, the board's been watching observation medicine very closely the last couple of years. Uh, there's a couple things going on. As we know, the Affo Affordable Care Act is really in full force now and we're watching as the exchanges come into place, uh, the Medicaid expansion or non-expansion, and watching how that's gonna change things. Uh, other things are going on as well, uh, such as bundled payments, uh, the idea of shared savings where we're trying to uh, reduce cost and then uh, hospitals and physicians groups may uh, share in that um, benefit and also ACOs and how those uh, things are gonna work. Um, the other big, uh, Thing that ASEP invested in was, and the EMAF uh, is on the RAND study. We contracted with the RAND group to talk about the value of emergency medicine so that we would be able to go out and advocate for members and for um, uh, our patients about what the value is of emergency medicine within the healthcare paradigm. Uh, and the results of that study showed that, um, that emergency physicians make 70% uh, of the unscheduled admission decisions. And we know that emissions account for about a third of the healthcare dollar, and we do it at 2% of the cost. So we're very, very um, effective, cost effective, uh, and we do have a heavy influence on that decision on whether to admit or not. Um, the other thing we found is that when uh, patients reached out to their primary care physician when they had an acute illness, 80% of them were actually told to go to the emergency department. So um, primary care physicians are referring their patients to us to make that differential diagnosis and that management decision. Um, I think we all know in the practice environment, I'm a practicing physician, uh, that the patients are coming in sicker, they're more complicated, 
and it's uh, the coordination of care to help them get the right care is more complicated as well. So as the ASEP board looks at this, we are thinking about what tools do we have and what options do we have to um, not only help our patients find the right place to go, but also to deliver the best possible quality of care and um, also to add our value, increase our value and show the healthcare system how we um, were um, a heavy influence on how the patients get the best care possible. And you know, uh, one of the more interesting things that I saw uh, on your presentation was really the uh, comparison and contrast between how policymakers regard emergency medicine and how really emergency medicine actually is. So uh, a lot of times policymakers will say things like, like uh, avoidable visits or uh, high, wasteful sort of medical expenses, mm -hmm. when really, uh, I think ASAP, um, from what I understand, wants to make it to where the ER really should be the centerpiece mm -hmm. of how you take care of uh, patients, e mm -hmm. acutely ill and otherwise. You know, absolutely. I, you know, we went through at our last strategic planning uh, retreat, we went through all the different think tanks and what they were talking about emergency medicine, and all of them talked about the emergency department as a place where, you know, where we're wasting money. Um, but uh, there was also a think tank that talked about the ED as the hub of the enterprise. So it's the entry point for people to find uh, where, where they need to go in terms of care and also to to uh, get treatment and stabilization for acute care illnesses. So the, the hub of the enterprise is really how we see emergency medicine. And um, observation medicine is a piece of that puzzle uh, as we move forward. Yeah, and I think part of that going forward is going to be the, the so-called two midnight rule, which was, I guess, a uh, some would say it's, it's a new policy and some would say it's just CMS reasserting kind of an old policy, and that's the primacy of, I guess, the physician's decision-making to determine whether a patient should be an inpatient versus an outpatient. Um, that went into effect on October the 1st, um, and just so we're all on the same page, I guess I'll briefly describe what that, what that says, and it basically says that, uh, you know, a patient can be considered an inpatient as long as there is a, uh, an order written by a physician for inpatient admission and uh, a documented reason for inpatient admission as well as a statement uh, as to how long it's anticipated that they will uh, need inpatient care for inpatient services. Um, and they clarified that further and said there's actually kind of two distinct rules within that. One is the two midnight benchmark. And essentially that just gives guidance to the admitting practitioners and reviewers when determining whether somebody is appropriate to admit on an inpatient basis. And the other is the two midnight presumption uh, which basically states that claims for inpatient services with lengths of stay greater than two midnights after admission order will generally be presumed to be appropriate for payment under Medicare Part A. So, you know, in, in some ways it changes the landscape a little bit for how we as practicing emergency physicians and, you know, in interactions with our colleagues, uh, you know, on medicine and surgical services will we'll treat certain patients. It can mean that certain patients... Um, will become now in pay, you know, maybe the, the, the weak and dizzy old lady who's going to require a couple days and possibly skilled nursing facility placement. That may be somebody easier to qualify as a um, uh, inpatient versus, you know, some of these chest pains and stuff like that are going to be in the outpatient, maybe things that we are going to own a little more. Um, all that is background. Uh, and to say that, that 
the landscape will change a little bit. So I guess I wanted both of you to comment as to how you think, you know, first of all, that's going to impact us as emergency physicians. And then second of all, how uh, observation units and observation medicine can both help with that and what are the challenges that we're going to face going forward in terms of owning some of these patients that maybe traditionally we didn't own. I think uh, the, the reason for this uh, clarification is, is economically driven. I believe uh, just recently there was a, a decision to delay uh, not implementation but uh, uh, auditing of the two midnight rule for 90 days until January 1st. So we have a little bit of time to kind of really understand what the rules are and how it will be applied. But the reason that the two midnight rule was brought forward is the whole concept of the three-day stay which uh, has uh, ramifications on two sides. One, the hospital's uh, uh, payments, and two, the cost share burden to the patient. If a patient who was admitted to observation rather than to an inpatient status, a Medicare patient, the difference is uh, paying the Part A deductible, which I believe is around $1,200, versus uh, what could be the 20% of the admission, which may be many thousands of dollars and even more so if that patient later goes to a skilled nursing facility without the three-day hospital stay the skilled nursing is not covered and now that may be tens of thousands of dollars out of the patient's pocket so there was uh, um, uh, some maneuvering between facilities about yes this is an admission no this is not an admission uh, uh, and then the status might retrospectively be determined whether it was admission or non-admission. And then now, as we move forward, I think to Dr. Parker's point, the emergency physician is fairly uniquely positioned as uh, uh, right at the nexus of the transition of care uh, decision-making point, where does this patient need to go to the uh, uh, inpatient status? Can they stay in observation for an appropriate length of time? Or is there some other venue now in an integrated healthcare system that can uh, uh, properly manage the presenting problem. And the reasons for that are uh, both uh, uh, economic and to uh, facilitate the highest quality of care with the most efficient uh, practice management. I think this is good for ED managed observation units. Um, I think that the thing that we've done very well, uh, our, you know, our folks are the experts in emergency medicine, is we've managed those patients under 24 hours done a very good job of throughput, protocol-based delivery of care, and getting our nurses to, to, uh, to take advantage of that unit. I think that this, is, um, this supports that type of unit, that, that we need these units even more um, to be able to run those folks through efficiently. So uh, I think it can support that piece. And then as a clinician, the other day I was working before I came out to Seattle and was working with case management on a patient that uh, um, uh, I was admitting at 9 p.m. It was clearly going to meet the two midnight rule, and uh, it was very clear to me as a practicing physician, I wasn't wondering about whether amid observation, run the you know, criteria, and although the hospital hadn't quite yet set up their process yet, when she came over to talk to me, I was familiar with the two midnight rule, and I asked her about it, and she said, you know, yeah, I mean, we're, they're starting to look at what's their trend for this particular diagnosis or scenario, what, how, how long does that patient usually stay, and make, helping that to make their decision which for us as clinicians, I mean, we all, um, I uh, am frustrated by Interqual and Millman, and none of us completely understand it, including the attending physicians. So I think it is getting us back into 
the physician making that medical decision making. Um, uh, but we also need to support, though, that medical decision making in our documentation that to meet that criteria. Right. And I think it's going to be sorry. I think it's going to be interesting going forward um, because this is. I guess forced me to all of a sudden become familiar with the bylaws of the hospitals I work at and Correct. find out that it, you know at one of them I <clears throat> don't officially have admitting privileges so I think it's going to be something for you know ASAP to stand up and you know probably reassert that you know if we're making these decisions Correct. you know who is the right person to write that order and who is you know Well the trick is of course observation is now patient service so right. you don't need admitting privileges necessarily for an outpatient service so I think at the retreat we're going to talk about this because um, right now most of us do not have admitted, admitting privileges and most of us traditionally have thought that that was not a good idea right. um, to have admitting privileges. So we're going to need to pause and take a look and say, okay, in this new healthcare paradigm, do we still not want to have admitting privileges? Is this something we may want to go for or not go for? Um, I can tell you right now the places that I work, we do a lot of telephone orders. Yeah. Uh, anyway, now for our bridging orders, because Joint Commission had been coming through and saying and had said, for bridging orders, you don't have admitting privileges. You cannot write. You ED physician cannot write admitting privileges. Yeah. So we've all flipped over to their actually telephone orders from the attending. Yeah. And that's worked pretty well. So in those facilities, this is not so much of a big deal. But in other places, people are going to have to work through the process. Well, I know, and at least places where Dr. Osborne and I work, there, there's a lot of residents and physician extenders, Correct. especially overnights that are writing it. And the, you know, the way it's stated is that in order for the hospital to get paid Correct. for this patient as an inpatient before their discharge, that order needs to be signed and verified by the it's attending physician. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, again, like you said, that's something I think that, you know, ASAP board will have to decide if this is something Correct. we as emergency physicians want to take on. But, you know, I think it impacts observation in that, you know, as you're working in the emergency department, you're making those decisions and you're deciding, you know, if it's our decision that this patient, no, they're not appropriate for observation care or an ED observation unit, that's that's the decision we make. And that, that, sure. that definitely impacts the type of patients going to the observation units. There will be a balance between a, uh, taking on additional medical legal liability uh, for the admission. There are uh, some, mostly I think it comes down to timing issues, both to get that patient admitted, both for throughput, open up the ED beds, get the patient to the venue that is most appropriate for their care, and uh, to capture the reimbursement for the first day if you can get the admission orders done. This has been a little bit of an um, additional component in that recently was uh, uh, a rule was in place that a PA could no longer write admission orders. And I right. think now, I'm a little fussy on that, I think that's since been rescinded or at least is uh, under uh, reconsideration. Right. But uh, now the attending would actually have to come in or, or somehow take care of the admission orders, some, maybe in, in those late night, early morning situations to capture the first day. Uh, you know, I think there's going to be some, some challenges about uh, that, that are going to be in the clinical arena for this. And... Uh, you know, when we discussed it at, uh, at our institution, one of the things that, uh, that Mike and um, uh, Mike, Matt, and myself kind of came up with is the there's going to be an increased emphasis on short stay inpatients, right? right. Because there's going to be, uh, and maybe, maybe it would never happen like on purpose, but that somewhat incentivizes to make a lot of patients inpatients, bring them into the hospital. And uh, 
what what the RAC and and uh, what Medicare is going to be looking at is if this patient leaves uh, after two midnights and say in, in under seventy two hours, was was that an appropriate uh, admission? Uh, were, were they actually presumed to be an inpatient? So these short stay inpatients leaving just after the two midnights happen, uh, that's going to be something that I think is going to cause triggers. Uh, sure with Medicare and uh, other uh, auditors. And the, the, the other thing, the other group of people that I think this really helps is uh, your, uh, your LOBS group or your long outpatient observation uh, stays. So really, this uh, albeit small uh, group of people is really suffering from this uh, arbitrary, well not arbitrary, but poorly evidence-based interqual criteria. Right, and right. Um, you know, I read the uh, uh, reported the Office of the Inspector General uh, mm-hmm. that came out um, earlier this year, mm-hmm. and really the amount of uh, the amount of people that are really affected by this long out long outpatient stays is very small, very mm-hmm. small. And, but however, they're a small and vocal group. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other thing that was in the uh, OIG report is that if you do have an observation uh, visit, and this twenty percent. A lot of times, the twenty percent is considerably less than an inpatient co- copay. So, say for instance, you have an OBS visit that includes sixteen hours of OBS uh, and some nuclear stress testing. Right, mm-hmm. a lot. Of, you know that that would probably round out about uh, four thousand or so dollars in charges. Right. Mm-hmm. So, if you're a Medicare patient, twenty percent of that is about eight hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Right. But if you uh, are an inpatient, receive the same services, then your deductible could be like you say, it could be twelve hundred dollars, right? And so, you a lot of times you make out much better uh, if you are an, an observation status. So, I think the sorry. trick is that you need to. It needs to be a short stay. So mm-hmm. when they start to bleed over into two and three days, that's right. when you get into trouble, which is probably you know where the two midnight idea mm-hmm. came from. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in the end, the short stay observation piece will get more support because uh, the hospitals will still rely on Interqual and Millman to prove medical necessity because we really have no other way to do that at this point and we've all kind of gone that down that road and if even if it, that patient crosses over two midnights if they don't meet Interqual criteria still I think the hospitals will be very nervous that they're not meeting medical necessity so I think that'll get us more resources to do throughput get stress tests on Saturday make those decisions on that short stay OBS unit so that the uh, if the patient is appropriately in an observation situation um, that they they will make sure they get through the system and not bleed over into those two two midnight stays so I think there's a potential management advantage mm-hmm. from an observation CDU perspective um, to get more resources to be sure you really are getting these people through and know they can't wait till Monday right. on Friday night and you know at the at the section meeting for observation yesterday, one mm-hmm. of the things that came up a, cu- a couple of times is the the question of resources. Right. And uh, when you lay out the spreadsheet of who's going to pay for what and how how is uh, how are the physicians uh, compensated, mm-hmm. a lot of times it comes out to be kind of difficult if you look at it in a simple silo mm-hmm. of you see this patient, you get paid this much. And uh, maybe both of you could comment on what what ASEP's role uh, would be in maybe uh, not necessarily in direct advocacy, but in sharing the information that that uh, these services, if you're gonna make the emergency department the centerpiece or you want us to be the hub, then 
we need to be at the forefront of the observation discussion and does that or should that require more support from your hospital? Maybe start historically and concentrate on the professional side rather than the facility side. But there are codes for the ED, ENM visit, and separate codes for the observation service. The CPT is pretty clear that any, uh, any services on the same day leading up to observation are bundled in. So the same provider cannot bill for an ED, ENM service and then also bill for an observation service. If you look at the requirements for the code, they require a comprehensive history, comprehensive physical exam, and medical decision making of low, moderate, or high decision making, which will then trigger whether your uh, observation is uh, level one, two, or three. There are uh, three sets of observation codes now, the initial admit, a subsequent day of observation, if you really are uh, looking at parts of three calendar days, and it is calendar day, not hours. And then the third set is uh, observation, admission, and discharge all on the same day. Now the RVUs assigned to those are uh, commensurate with the uh, approximate level of complexity. You uh, probably historically would actually make more money just from a revenue generation cycle, turning the bed over two or three times rather than keeping one observation patient in an ED bed for 16 or more hours. However, if that's the uh, service that you're actually providing, which um, is probably good quality care because of the uh, nature of the emergency department, both the uh, uh, training of the physician to rapidly diagnosis and manage a patient, maybe seeing that same patient multiple times during the day instead of in an office setting where you'd see them once, come back in a couple of days, see them again, or even inpatient where the rounding is only once a day and there's not that uh, uh, constant uh, uh, refining of the treatment plan based on the uh, uh, patient's reaction to the medical uh, plan. So uh, on the professional side, that's where you're concentrating, uh, do what's right for the patient, but then uh, report the service that is going to be most favorable for your reimbursement based on what the chart documentation shows you've actually done. Now on the facility side, I'm not a facility coding expert, it, uh, historically the hospital would actually make more money with the admission than uh, on the observation because it's kind of a DRG you build the DRG as rather than a, mm -hmm. um, uh, the APC code for mm -hmm. observation. Where I see us moving in the future now is maybe not so much revenue generation from uh, uh, the fees paid for observation mm -hmm. is a system-wide savings of uh, uh, most efficiently managing the patient and sending them to the best venue for uh, whatever medical services they need. And it may be that the emergency physician's perceived value to a hospital system or an ACO network is not you're generating this much more mm -hmm. dollar for your observation, but the cost savings to the system for quickly and efficiently, efficiently managing that patient. Yeah, I think the ED physician is, uh, ED management team is best suited to, um, to work on throughput, identifying the patient that belongs in a CDU, uh, working on policies on throughput. ED nurses are very good at the throughput idea. Um, so uh, when you're looking in terms of trying to pay for some of those um, extra duties that people are, are assuming, there's other, there are models out there using extenders, 
um, using extenders with with a with a uh, maybe a hospital's medical director, so that um, that that separate group that uh, second group that you're supporting can actually uh, um, would actually do that second review, and then you'd be able to bill for those services. Uh, the other um, conceptually. Um, uh, when you're talking to your hospital administration about potentially subsidizing that line of service, they need to look at the uh, observation CDU as an entire line of service, professional and facility side altogether. And um, if they're going to subsidize that or provide a stipend for uh, you to be able to pay providers to provide those services, they'll need to take a look at that ROI. And I would say to members on the physician side, use the RVUs that, that David and his team fought for and the AMA and the RUC committee to say, okay, so here's our value and this is, this is the numeric value to the services we're providing and you can set up your, your stipend based on how much extra service you're providing based on that RVU. And that's a good way um, to use that negotiation. There may be also be some arguments about risk sharing and uh, potential savings to the hospital that uh, I think the administrator will understand the value in both of those services. Right. I mean, you're, you're taking somebody like a, a TIA patient who, you know, treated <coughs> under traditional care in an inpatient bed 72 hours, and you're reducing that to a 24-hour length of stay. So, uh, you know, from a risk standpoint, they're less likely to get a nosocomial pneumonia or a DVT or a fall in the hospital. I mean, you, you, you can very easily monetize those kind of risks. Mm -hmm. um, and you're also freeing that inpatient bed for somebody who, who meets inpatient criteria more, more solidly and really needs that inpatient bed. So right. you, you are, it really is kind of uh, cost and, and risk sharing and, and, you know, whichever physicians are taking care of that, I think, you know, it's, it, you can make a case to the hospital that, you know, we're providing a service, we're providing value, um, and, and need to be compensated. You know, at our institution, uh, uh, the, the COO uh, came to the OBS group. Like, it was, uh, they came up, they looked at all these different ways to save money, and uh, observation was one of them, because our, our hospital is uh, jam-packed. And we have these observation patients that stay uh, 72 hours on average that are outside of the CDU. The CDU uh, uh, that we have at uh, Midtown is about 90, 97% full, right? So if you to turn over the beds with the 16 hours, like we're pretty much always full. Uh, so they said, can't have more CDU beds. So they what they did was uh, they ran the numbers and said, if we start taking some of these 72 hours patients, making them shorter and putting them in a different place, we can backfill with uh, big money surgeries like more cabbages. We have a lot, we have uh, way more ENT inpatient only surgeries that can happen because what was happening was these uh, observation patients were going to these surgical beds as overflow. And so now those beds are open and the patients are getting more efficient care elsewhere. Right, right. So, well, that's a scenario. How big is your emergency department? Uh, we see about 66. Okay. How many bed CDU? Uh, uh, we have an eight bed CDU. Okay. Okay. So, after, so as part of that, we, they made a 10 bed inpatient or hospitalist run observation unit that I also am the medical director of just kind of like how you were saying. Right. So, right. um, right. and, uh, so really it's ER management again, like how you say at the forefront of this observation right. discussion right. Yeah. for our hospital. One of the things that I talked to the observation section of ASAP about yesterday is developing a toolkit for members so that they, as um, 
as people are looking into observation units and setting one up themselves, they have a place to go to understand the dynamics. And uh, actually our palliative section, palliative medicine section, has a great example of um, a set of slides on, on starting a palliative medicine program that you can show to your CEO and kind of business plan and policies and procedures. And I would uh, have uh, talked to the section about maybe putting one together for, like that for observation um, so that um, as, as people are asked these questions, they have somewhere to go um, for resources and some of these talking points to be able to take to their administration so that, um, so that uh, their administration can make these decisions and make them with the most information possible. I think that's a really important uh, point that uh, uh, observation is tricky. There are a lot of regulations involved and it's under intense scrutiny for some of the reasons we've talked about previously. So if you're going to uh, transition into observation, make sure that you have the right information and that you do proceed uh, with uh, um, the correct knowledge. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, the, you know, our best estimate is that uh, a little over a third of U.S. hospitals have some sort of dedicated observation space, um, and, and that's all comers. I mean, that's ED run, cardiology or internal medicine run, chest pain only versus you know a multi-dimensional, multi-protocol. And it includes critical access hospitals that may uh, not need one. Right, right, right. So, so mm -hmm. that being said, I think with the with the pressure on hospitals to care for more patients on an outpatient basis. Um, these are going to start springing up and, and there's going to be more pressure on uh, whether it's emergency department physicians to set up and run some sort of OBS unit in the hospital. So yeah, I think that toolkit you were mentioning will be very helpful uh, to the members and um, yes. I think uh, the observation section, ASAP is, you know, planning on putting something out. And we do have resources available in terms yes. of protocols right. Now's already. your chance to plug the book. So we have a, <laughs> we have a free, You're waiting for that. I'm waiting for it. We, we have a free iBook uh, available. It's a CDU manual. Uh, and on the section website, uh, there's uh, Lou Graff's uh, electronic uh, book. The difference between the CDU manuals, really, it's about uh, the management, the metrics, uh, different nomenclature, things like that to look for. Uh, it also has all of the protocols that we use at Emory yes. in it, um, and uh, Dr. Graff's book really is uh, very focused on the science of uh, the observation. Yes. Uh, but in addition to the book, there's also a website that uh, Dr. Wheatley and I put together called obsprotocols.org. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also free, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, you can get references for the pathways, uh, and there's an Android app that we designed also um, cool. and our uh, iTunes or iPhone app is um, getting beat around by Apple right now so right. hopefully in a couple weeks it'll come out. Uh, so uh, I, you know, I'd like to wrap, by, wrap up by saying thank you for uh, spending some time with us. I know you guys are very busy uh, and uh, you guys put on a great conference uh, again uh, and uh, I'll speak for Dr. Wheatley and myself uh, when I say if you do not have OBS you have a problem and uh, we will see you next time.